I wonder how much you know about your family history. If you're like most people, you probably know little bits and pieces. People have gone before you. Maybe you've even signed up for Ancestry.com to figure out the web of your family tree and how far back it goes. You know, I've heard that you can even send in a hair follicle now or perhaps a blood sample and they can tell you different pieces of your genetic makeup. But if there is someone famous in your family, someone of great accomplishment, someone who's done really important things, then I reckon that you know a lot more about your family history. You know a lot more about that person and how they relate to your history today. That's the case in my family. My name is Sam Johnson, and you've probably heard of my famous ancestor, Samson, Samson Johnson. He was a man of great renown, a man of mighty feats of strength, a man who played a part in a miraculous delivery of an entire nation. He even made the Hall of Fame. Now, he never won the home run derby or never became a Super Bowl champion, but he could have been if he had tried. But he made a different Hall of Fame. A Hall of Fame that's listed in Hebrews chapter 11 as a great servant of God. Through the years, the legend of Samson Johnson has been passed down through my family from one generation to another. And it's a story of, of great accomplishment and of great shame. Let me tell you about this relative of mine, this Samson. When Samson came on the scene, his people, our people, Israel, were oppressed by a foreign nation again. That seemed to be happening a lot in those days. The people of Israel, my kin, would, would, would follow the Lord for a while, and then they would turn away from him, and they'd become oppressed by a foreign nation. And the pain became so great that they would cry out for help. And God would send a deliverer, and he would rescue them until they turned again. And this cycle happened again and again and again. And again, now the people of Israel were oppressed by the Philistines, but this time it was different. There was no crying out to God. They were silent. They seemed to become generally apathetic toward their situation. They pretty much tried to avoid their Philistine masters whenever they could, staying out of their way, keeping the peace, keeping the status quo, but they had become indeed comfortable with the status quo. And it was almost like we had forgotten how good we could have it. It's almost as if the people had forgotten the great things that God had in store for them and what he wanted to do in them and through them. They didn't even remember that there was something better for them than this. Contemporary analogy might be, when you get used to eating marshmallows, you forget how good it is to taste meat. When you get used to driving a minivan, well, <laughs> you forget how good it is to drive a roadster. Sadly, that's my plight in life. You get the point. Apathy ruled the day. 
People were so far off in their pursuit of God that they forgot that there was something better for them. And then one day, my ancestor went to her husband, Manoah, and told him that she was going to have a baby. He laughed and laughed. I mean, this woman had been barren for years, and now she was past childbearing age. But she said, no, 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 wait, a man from God came and told me that I was going to give birth to a son and that he was going to be a deliverer for our people. And Manoah scoffed until he met this man of God, this angel for himself. And then he thought to himself, maybe, just maybe, this is one of these situations like we had heard about before, the Abraham and Sarah and the miraculous birth of a son named Isaac. And not long after, their boy Samson was born. And he was to be set apart for a purpose. He would not live a life like other people. Samson had a Nazarite's vow. And to be a Nazarite meant three specific provisions or stipulations in his life. The first was that he could not drink wine or alcoholic beverages. The second was that he could not cut his hair. And the third was that he could not come in contact with unclean things or dead things. And Samson's uniqueness in this is that he didn't choose this life. This was his lot from the beginning. And it wasn't just for a season of his life. But this vow was to be for his entire life. Samson's other uniqueness in this was that he foolishly broke every single one of those aspects of his vows throughout the course of his life. One thing was clear. Samson's life was not his own. It belonged to God, and he had a purpose in it. Samson's life was not his own. It belonged to God, and he had a purpose in it. As time went on, everybody began to see the potential that Samson Johnson had. I mean, after all, he was a man of great characteristics and also some pretty major flaws. And like any parent, they didn't want to admit his flaws, but he was supposed to be a deliverer for them, and deliverers weren't supposed to have glaring flaws. Samson didn't exactly know what it meant to be a deliverer, but his mother knew that God would use him fantastically. And yet, as time went on, some very concerning things began to happen. Samson was strong, (laughs) very strong. And he had that famous Johnson charisma about him. (laughs) It happens for most of the men in our family. But I tell you what, despite his strength and his charisma, there was still a sense in which this guy lacked a sense of resolve to stick to his vow. Samson was a man who was dominated by his senses and sensuality instead of logic. He cared more about fulfilling his immediate desires than he did about fulfilling God's greater purposes for him. And we saw this in many ways. First time that it was seen was when he was in his teens. And as he was strolling through the countryside one day, he came across a beautiful Philistine woman. Bronze skin, silky black hair. She was a real knockout. And Samson insisted that she would become his wife. 
Now, Manoah, his father, persisted and said, absolutely not. You will not marry a Philistine. But Samson would only do according to what seemed right in his own eyes. And so he pursued the woman. And one day, as he was in pursuit of her, going to talk to her, we would later find out that Samson was actually attacked by a lion. And he killed the animal with his bare hands. The lion jumped out from behind a bush looking to devour his prey, and Samson caught him in midair and tore him apart. He didn't do anything wrong. He was just protecting himself. And later he would say that it was almost like there was a supernatural presence that empowered him to do this. Like the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, giving him this great strength. Now after he would killed the lion, what Samson was supposed to do was to go through some ritual cleansing. He didn't care too much about that. He was in hot pursuit of a girl. And so he went on to the village and in pursuit of her. A few days later, at the wedding feast, Samson again walked by the carcass of this lion that he had killed, and he saw that bees had taken up residence there. And so he reached his hand right into the honey pot and took out a big handful of honey and enjoyed it on the rest of his way to the village. But in doing so, he broke his Nazarite vow. He touched something that was unclean, something that was dead. He was simply living for himself in the moment. At the feast, I'm pretty sure that Samson broke his vow again. He was acting a little bit funny. It's really common for us to have wine at these types of feasts and festivals. And Samson and his buddies kept sneaking off behind one of the local tents. And you just sort of kept looking back and looking forward and looking back and say, something doesn't pass the smell test here. Samson was again doing what was right in his own eyes, whatever pleased him in the moment. And while he was there, that famous Johnson charm came out again. And he called a bunch of the Philistine villagers around and he said, let's make a gamble, you and me. I'm going to tell you a riddle and if, I, if you get the riddle, I will give you each a linen garment. But if you do not, then you all owe me a linen garment. And this was the riddle. It was something like this. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the eater came something sweet. He, of course, was referring to the lion carcass and the bees and the honey. And the Philistines didn't really know what to make of this riddle. And so they thought about it. And they thought about it. And they thought about it. And three days went by and Samson's new bride was whispering in his ear asking him to tell her the truth of the riddle, and he did. And she scurried away, off to the corners of the village, whispering in the ears of others, so much so that her own kinsmen found out about the bees and the honey and the carcass, and they solved the riddle. Now Samson owed them 30 pieces of clothing. He was mad. Oh, he was mad at the situation, he was mad at the Philistines, and he was mad at his new wife. He was so mad that he called her a heifer to those Philistine men. Now ladies, don't go running off and telling your husband secrets unless you want to be called a heifer. 
And men, don't ever call your wife a heifer. As a result, Samson, in his rage, went down to another Philistine village, murdered 30 men, took their clothing, came back, and paid his debt. He was supposed to be the deliverer of Israel from the Philistines. He wasn't supposed to marry a Philistine. He was supposed to be an ambassador for God's agenda. He wasn't supposed to be an ambassador for his own agenda. And yet, even in this circumstance, God was using Samson to provoke a battle with these Philistines. God was working. But it was becoming increasingly clear Samson did not understand that his life was not his own. Well, the story gets even more intense from there. I'll give you the fast version. After Samson paid off his debts, he went away for a short time and he came back and he found out that his father-in-law had given his wife away to another guy. That's a pretty raw deal. I mean, I know that many of us have had problems with our father-in-laws, And I know that many a father-in-law has even threatened a new son-in-law. But I bet you that none of you had your father-in-law give your wife away to somebody else. Samson was mad. So angry was he that he stormed off into the wilderness with a couple of big sacks. And everybody thought to themselves, I don't know what he's going to do next. He returned with these big sacks full of foxes that were snipping and snarling and biting 300 foxes he had caught in the wilderness. And as he pulled them one after another out of the sacks, he tied their tails together. And in the middle of their tails, he would stick a torch that was lit, and he'd let them off. 300 foxes going two by two, running about, biting and jumping and yelping through the fields of the Philistines. And guess what? Burned down their entire crop. Samson got the last word. So the Philistines, in their anger, went, and they burned down the household of the father-in-law and of Samson's wife. And then they turned their hunt toward Samson. Samson, at the behest of his Israelite brethren, would turn himself in to the Philistines, because Samson Johnson would not easily be caught. And so he turned himself in, but it was yet another trap. As they were taking him away, he cut loose of the bonds that were tied him together. He saw a carcass of a donkey laying on the side of the road. He reached down, he grabbed a jawbone, and he just went nuts, swinging and swinging and swinging. And minutes later, a thousand Philistine men had died. His acts of strength were growing. The Spirit of the Lord seemed to be empowering him. The lion... (laughs) The 30 men, the 300 foxes, and now a 1,000 men. Samson Johnson was starting to do the things that legends do. But the problem was that he was not doing them for the right reasons in the moment. And yet God was using this Samson in his great sense of humor, to make the Philistines look like a bunch of fools for oppressing his people and for pursuing his servant. 
But it's quite clear Samson's behavior was out of control. I mean, he was driven by his sensual desires and by revenge. He was really no different than the Philistine captors that he was trying to deliver us from. He had a major authority issues. I mean, he kept ignoring God's laws and even the vows of his own Nazarite vow. He was prideful enough to think that his way was always the best way. And the really the sad part about it was is that Samson would say that he believed in God. He would say that he was even trying to follow God in some way. And yet through his haphazard approach to God, he shows that he continued in rebellion, not in faithfulness. I wonder if you've ever struggled with that same thing. To say that you believe in God, to acknowledge his existence, but to continue to go about your life in your own way, with your own desires. Or maybe like Samson would later display, to rely on God in the biggest types of moments, (laughs) but in the daily grind of life to pursue your own desires. Samson continued and his acts of strength grew stronger and stronger. And so did his acts of pride and sensuality. Some years later, Samson went to Gaza, and in the pursuit of his sexual desires, he hired a prostitute. The Philistines knew that he was in town, and so they set a trap. And as they did, Samson Johnson would not easily be caught. He broke through the bonds again. He escaped from the Philistines, and in his rage, he uprooted the gate of the city and carried it off to the nearby hill in Hebron. Now, that might not sound like that big of a deal. Anybody having a temper tantrum can rip down a gate. But the standards to this gate were two stories high. The gate weighed some hundreds of pounds. The poles were set deep into the earth. And the little hill that Samson carried it to was 40 miles away with a 2,000-foot incline. Samson grew in strength. But then came his undoing. And it's not surprising that his undoing came at the hand of a woman. I mean, after all, Samson spent his entire adult life pursuing the things that would physically please him. And this time it came from a woman named Delilah. She seduced him. And he wanted to be seduced. He should have known that She was playing a dangerous game with him and that he with her, she asked him again and again and again to know the source of his strength. Three times she asked, three times he tricked her. But then she just kept pressing, nagging day in and day out, day in and day out, nag, 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 until finally he caved and he told her, that if he cut his hair, he would lose his power. I don't know why he told her. Perhaps the nagging was just too much. Perhaps it was the idea of instant gratification. After all, she was seducing him. Perhaps he had thought to himself, what's the big deal? I had broken the other parts of my Nazarite vow. If I break this one, the results will just simply be the same. Or perhaps it was just a general growing apathy toward God 
and toward the things of God that he just didn't care anymore. But one thing was for certain. Samson didn't realize that his life was not his own. It belonged to God. And he had a purpose. And when he committed this final act of rebellion, God left him. The following days for Samson were very hard. The Philistines gouged out his eyes. And this man who had been dominated by his senses or the pursuit of sensuality for his entire life now had these same senses that became his biggest curse as he could not see any longer and he was sentenced to slave labor. And as he pursued this slave labor, the Philistines laughed. And they said, clearly the great servant of Yahweh has fallen. And our God, Dagon, is stronger than their God, Yahweh. Then the end finally came for Samson. One day the Philistines brought him into the public arena where they would celebrate and where they would worship and they wanted Samson to entertain them. And Samson, in one last call out to God, asked to be avenged for the gouging out of his eyes. Now, Samson probably should have said, God, please make your name greater than the name of Dagon. God, please let me, your representative, represent you well. But he simply wanted to be avenged. But nevertheless, God granted his prayer. He strengthened him miraculously. He pushed down the pillars that held up the building and the roof collapsed. And Samson died. But with him died more Philistines than Samson had killed throughout the course of his entire life. As I think back over my ancestor Samson's life, I think it's incredible that God even got involved in this whole thing at all. I mean, that my people were so despondent, so distant, that they had gone through the cycle of sin again and again and again, and now they were just completely apathetic, and yet God pursued his people yet one more time. He truly is merciful and gracious, and he never, never goes back on his promises. I think it's amazing that he uses people like Samson, What potential he had. The potential to do incredible things for God. And God empowered him to do incredible things. And yet at the very same time, you think, what if he had followed God faithfully and diligently? What could have happened then? I mean, it's gut-wrenching to think of a man who has his whole life encompassed by this pursuit of sensuality, of sexual sin, of lust, and how this lust leads him to greater and greater, greater developments of sin. It's sad to see spiritual apathy in his calling that ultimately leads toward rebellion against God. And yet, despite these things, God uses this gifted and self-serving man to conquer a nation of people and to display himself greater than their God, Dagon. He truly is the king of glory the great God of the heavens. 
But Samson never got it. He never understood that his life was not his own. It belonged to God. And he had a purpose for it. As I think about Samson's life and think about my history, it occurs to me that there are a lot of people that don't get it. You know what I'm saying? Do you get it? That your life belongs to God? And he has a purpose for it? That your life is not your own? It belongs to God? And he has a purpose for it? I mean, especially now on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, we see that God sent his son so that he could purchase people back to himself. That all of those who would put their faith in this son, the savior Jesus, would be forgiven of their sins. And this forgiveness happens as they are bought with a price. And so the response, as the apostle Paul tells us, is that our life is no longer our own. (laughs) We Live now by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. The good news of Jesus is that you don't have to be condemned to the pursuit of your own desires, nor the eternal consequences of those desires. But instead, you can have a greater purpose, a greater calling, a greater life, and a greater eternity through faith in him. Do you get it? Or are you like my ancestor, Samson Johnson? Your life is not your own. It belongs to God. And he has a purpose for it. Now, you might not be a Nazarite. You might not be called to deliver a nation from their enemies. But nevertheless, every single life belongs to God. Do you live like your life belongs to him? Do you pursue God like your life belongs to him? Do you seek forgiveness like your life belongs to him? Because if Samson Johnson teaches us anything, he teaches us that God will accomplish his purposes with or without the active knowledge of those who are participating. But you and I have a much more rewarding life when we come to a realization that this life does not actually belong to us. Your life is not your own. It belongs to God, and he has a purpose for it. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we recognize that you are the great king of glory that you will not be made the fool, (laughs) that you will have no other gods that are set before you, and that you, in your kindness, bought to yourself men and women and boys and girls from the kingdom of darkness and restored them to the kingdom of your son. Lord, we confess that it is so easy for us to live our lives in a way that just looks at the next step or two steps ahead of us, that the pursuit of our physical desires, the pursuit of our earthly goals, the pursuit of material things all become of greatest importance to us. The pursuit of our earthly relationships, as rewarding as they are, become of great importance to us. And yet, we recognize that 
this life that you've given us, as short as it is in the speck of eternity, is one that actually belongs to you. And so I pray, Father, that you would forgive us and that you would help us, that you would help us to see beyond ourselves or our own desires or our own agendas, that we would grow in understanding and courageously acting in the agenda that you have for us, and that you might be glorified by lives who are actively and willfully engaged in accomplishing your great purposes. We pray these things for the sake of Jesus. Amen.